North Node. And I said, okay, sure, I'll try it. I mean, yoga, it sounds a little weird or mysterious to me, but I want to see what it's like. I'm open to it, right? And within five minutes, Paige, I just fell in love with yeah. the way I was moving, the way I was breathing fully. And I walked out of that first class noting two things really in particular. One, my back felt great. And I didn't even realize that it had been stiff prior to going in there, right? Yes. But I was like, wow, my back feels light. And then I noticed as I was walking to my car that I wasn't anxious. Hi, I'm Paige Nolan. Welcome to I'll Meet You There, a place where heart-centered conversations are everything. Living what matters is the truest thing, and sharing the journey is the best. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today, I'm meeting someone very special in this episode. He's a real deal yoga teacher. He's a husband, a father, a nature lover, a truth seeker, a truth teller. And as you all will soon hear, he is a devout and steadfast New Orleans Saints fan. I'm so happy to share my conversation with my dear friend, Jeffrey Roniger. So as many of you know, because you're familiar with my work, and for those of you who are new, I'm always interested in the most practical, natural, direct ways to feel good. And this is going to sound really obvious, but I have to admit it. It wasn't obvious for me for most of my life so far that breathing is one of the most practical, natural, and direct ways to feel good. Breathing and existing in my body, not just in my thoughts, that's an idea that yoga introduced to me. And at the time, it was, and it is, a life-changing idea. I've really learned how to breathe, and I continue to learn how to breathe through practicing yoga. And as far as something goes that's positive mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, all around positive for me, it's yoga. And Jeffrey has been one of my most beloved and important yoga teachers in my life, and just all around life teachers in my life. And I think he can be a teacher for you too. He's devoted his life to yoga, he walks his talk, he embodies his lessons, and I meet him here in this conversation where we explore feeling good in the body and also bringing your body and your life into balance. So get comfortable, take a deep breath, be where you are, and relax into Jeffrey's calm and soothing presence, and I hope you delight in his Southern accent as much as I do. By the end of the hour, we get to what yoga is all about without even trying to get there. And to me, that is what yoga is all about. So enjoy these moments with Jeffrey. Oh, it's so, just wonderful to be in your presence, Paige. Oh, I love you so much. And I love what you do. So thank you. I want to start by sharing something, a conversation that I had the other day with a 19-year-old. And we were talking about life. And she pauses in the middle of the conversation and she just says, well, what do you do to feel good? And I had Mm. to really pause for a second because I didn't just want to give her all the things. And, you know, I really wanted to tune in to what have I done in my life that has had the most positive impact and not give her 15 things. Mm. And the things that came out of my mouth were hand on the heart, hot water with lemon and yoga. And I thought, Isn't this interesting that all three of those things get me more in my body, they're immediate, and I knew about none of them before I was 40 years old. Mm -hmm. So my interest in having you 
is just because you've centered your life around yoga, you've had this incredible journey to be embodied and know who you are and live what matters and all those things that I'm interested in. And I really want you to help us demystify yoga. What is it about? How have you explored it? And one of the things that I've loved about you and your life and your practice is that it's not fancy, it's real, it's every day. So this is for the people listening who maybe are yogis, the people like me who are in between. I practice yoga, but I don't necessarily consider myself a yogi. And it's for a person who maybe is intimidated by yoga, has never tried yoga, doesn't realize how beneficial it could be. You know, I wished that I would have known about it when I was 19. Mm. So I know you're nodding because that resonates with you because I'm sure you've heard people say that. Will you start us, you know, what is yoga? What is it? And did you find yoga or did yoga find you? Yeah, what a great opening segue because it's almost heartbreaking to me to hear that you didn't know about those tools until you're 40. Yeah. Because I just feel like this should be, these are life skills and tools that everyone should have from the time they're very young. And then you said that, I wish I'd known that when I was 19. Well, that's the exact age when I started. Oh, no. Oh, I love that. And I just got, I mean, I know I've told you the story before, but I kind of got dragged to the class by my mom and my sister and Taylor, who was my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. And they were going to Melanie Fowers' Ashtanga yoga class in Mid-City, New Orleans. And I said, okay, sure, I'll try it. I mean, yoga, it sounds a little weird or mysterious to me, but I will I want to see what it's like. I'm open to it, right? And within five minutes, Paige, I just fell in love with yeah. the way I was moving, uh, the way I was breathing fully. I was engaged by the challenge of the practice, yes. the physicality of it, right? So coming off of being a high school athlete, I was like, ooh, this is not just lying around or chanting or any of the other stereotypes that most people have. This is yeah. quite uh, vigorous. And I walked out of that first class Noting two things really in particular. One, my back felt great. Yeah. And I didn't even realize that it had been stiff prior to going in there, right? Yeah. I was like, wow, my back feels light and loose and free. And then I noticed as I was walking to my car that I wasn't anxious. Yes. That's, that is my big takeaway. My first class, it was the same thing. I was like, wow, I am centered. Yeah, there's an absence of anxiety that had I hadn't realized had been under the surface for so long. And so it was those two things, the, the positive feeling of having been enlivened, moved, engaged, awakened, and then the absence of something that was kind of problematic and, and at a low-grade level in the background of my life for the 19 years prior to that moment, yeah. right? And that started me on the journey. I, I really wanted to do nothing other than that. Um, <laughs> so for five days a week, I went to Melanie's class. Um, yeah. Even when I went back to Vanderbilt, listeners might know that Paige and I went to college together. Yeah. And I would save up, you know, $12, maybe a month I was spending on the one public class that I would 
splurge on, right? Because I had a yes. student budget. Um, and it just felt just precious to me going into a studio, uh, learning about this great art form. Yeah. And I was also doing VHS for people who remember that that existed. These tapes, right? I had Rodney Yee's Totals. Yoga for Energy yes. VHS how, tapes. How did and you would, find Rodney? Was he recommended to you? Yeah, the owner of the studio in Nashville where I was taking classes just said, oh, if you're looking for home practice supplements, then check out this tape. You'll yeah. love it. And I did. It was very... Uh, minimal instruction. It was filmed on Maui and it was just this beautiful um, sequence that I did religiously forever. Mm. Um, you know, then I graduated from Vanderbilt, was a European studies major, knew I wanted to live in Europe. So me and a couple of friends went to Ireland for six months where we lived and bartended slinging Guinness to old men hearing their stories. That was pretty fun. Were you Still practicing my... yoga while you were in oh, Ireland? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All five days a week, for sure. And then when we moved to Edinburgh, Scotland, after that, I somehow, as fate would have it, got a job as a carpenter's assistant helping to renovate this 19th century church into a mm -hmm. purpose-built yoga studio. And I was getting free classes there at the time, um, immersing myself in the the tradition but, um, gosh, it, it was so consuming. It was like, that's all I really wanted to do. I remember sitting on a park bench in, in Edinburgh having maybe my first midlife crisis. This is age 23 saying, yes. what would I do with my life if money wasn't an issue? Like yes. if, if there's, if that wasn't even in consideration, what would you do? Like yeah. the Mary Oliver, what would you do with this one precious yes. life? Right. And I said, I'm not getting up from this bench until I can authentically answer that for myself. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I could really come up with was, well, I would study yoga. Yeah. I want to study it, not teach it. I just want to learn more about it because it was so intriguing to me. It was a, a really a worldview shift, you know, yeah. coming from uh, classical Western education to hearing and learning about uh, Eastern philosophical ideas. That was a big departure for me and, and um, uh, departure in worldview. That was um, philosophically captivating and, as I said, yes. physically so um, satisfying. Were you and studying it in an academic setting? Like immediately, did you start studying it? No, just learning books or okay. reading the books so that self -study. my teachers had recommended. Yeah, yeah self-study. But then when I moved to San Francisco after my yeah. European work visas ran out, I the first thing I did was to seek out a teacher. And I went across the bay to Oakland, Piedmont Yoga Studio, met Rodney Yee, uh, and just absolutely fell in love with his version of the practice. And it was kind of surreal, right, to have taken his class on VHS for all those years and then to be in person with him. Absolutely. And his a practice was so poetic. The way he was describing the inner body and the inner landscape was just otherworldly for me. I hadn't I hadn't thought to relate to myself in that way ever. Yeah. Um, he was a different form. So not going down the whole rabbit hole of the style that I started learning in yeah. the, when I was 19. But by the time, five years later at 24, I was learning a style of yoga that was slower in pacing, more precision oriented. 
Mm-hmm. Um, using more props, as you see in the background here, like yeah. long ropes, chairs, things to support the body and to help it essentially find a certain uh, balanced alignment and ease. Yeah. And so I think if I could even, that's kind of like the historical background of my mm-hmm. relationship to it, right? But I think at the heart of it has always been this pull toward embodiment. Yeah. And I would consider myself more of a somanaut, like an explorer of the body, like astronaut, somanaut, right? Yes. Uh, a somanaut, a, a bodily explorer. That Primarily, that's been my interest. S- yoga, I would say, is just a, a means to access that exploration, that. right? So it's not the goal, but it was, it felt like a, a valuable tool that helped me toward a larger goal I see. of becoming more fully embodied. Did you even know the difference? You know, is that, well, let me ask it this way. When you referenced earlier, it was so captivating because it was so different. Mm-hmm. Is that the difference? The difference between being inside and aligned and in your body Versus the way you were living, and I would say it's very much part of Western culture for us to live outside the body, in the yeah. head. We, is that distinction, was that the thing that was so yes. compelling? Yes, and I would also say that the first style of yoga that I learned was very hierarchical in terms of how you learned like you were given a pose by the teacher and when you were somewhat proficient in it you were given the next pose and then it was like climbing a ladder right so there were rungs and that's very attractive to the western mind because you keep wanting to to attain something new right i was definitely trapped in that hierarchical ladder scheme for a while in terms of oh i'll only be a valid person if when i've attained the third level or whatever, you know, it was like a carrot on a string dangling in front of you that was running afterwards. And, you know, I think that's also part of the time of life. So between age 19 and 24, where I felt pretty invincible, could, I was a wilderness or an instructor for a wilderness adventure company. I was leading outdoor trips and felt like I could hike from New Orleans to Canada, like yeah. no problem. Yeah. Um, and so it, it didn't seem outside of the realm of possibilities for me to think that I could keep climbing the, the ladder all the way to the end. Right. Yes. And so even when I remember setting these goals for myself at age 21 saying, okay, three things I really want to do with my life, hike the entire Pacific Crest Trail, which yeah. is from Mexico to Canada, right? Trek the entire Annapurna Circuit, which is a three-week circuit around uh, the Himalayan mountains in Nepal. Uh-huh. And I wanted to master all 200 of the poses in light on yoga. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Even like saying could, it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, 200 poses. Yeah. And I really thought I could do it right but then after a while it just the bottom fell out i completely realized that that's not the point that attainment that achievement the mastery orientation completely dropped away because after you're in this practice for long enough you realize that there is no such thing as mastery it's just an ever unfolding and deepening mystery and is that jeffrey is that what comes from engaging the practice that many times, falling out of the pose, realizing the limitations of your body, and and, and you have that switch of, oh, this isn't what it's about. 
Is it yeah. is it because of those experiential, you know, steeping yourself in the experience of it that the shift totally. comes? Totally. Because yeah. it, it just has a way of humbling you and of eradicating the ego point of view. I mean, yoga, the you asked, what is yoga? So liberation from the egotistical point of view would be a good definition. Liberation from the feeling of separation, right? It would be another way, an alternative way of saying that. So it does that in a pretty systematic way. At every pass where your ego tries to get a leg up on a pose or get better, it's just got this incredibly sophisticated way of knocking you back down, bringing you back down to ground, and really reminding you that that's not the point. And so really, when I'm going back to Rodney, it's just his poetry in a way of describing the inner body made me realize that the pose wasn't the point, but was rather just a, a bridge to get you back home in yourself. Yeah. Well, that in my line of work, that the thing that comes to mind is education. So I'll help a lot of people start something or pivot from something that they've already been highly educated in and they want to go into an area that they're less educated in. And so for me, that it makes me think, you know, you're talking about a sequence of poses and looking a certain way, holding a pose a certain amount of time. That brings to mind when I'm in conversations with people about, well, I have to go get this degree and I have to have this certification and I have to, it's exterior, 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 which, you know, to some extent is not a bad quest. You know, if you're filling a, a gap in your skill set or if you need that network behind that certification program, you know, if you, you need something to be bolstered, to be confident. But the real point is to have the experience of whatever that new thing is that you're doing and to come home to what you really want to contribute yeah. through, through an offering, whatever that offering is. But that takes a minute. You know, it sounds mm -hmm. like you were in that journey at a younger age, even though age doesn't matter, but at a younger age, because it's inside your body, like you have access to it. Whereas I'm talking to people who are, you know, midlife, who have had a certain amount of years and time in a career path that they are then questioning that career path or going deeper into it or leaving it. But it's the same concept, I think, of the outside of your life versus the inside feeling of your life. Totally, Paige. And so that interiority versus exteriority, the way our whole society is set up to praise and reward external gains, just where that's the environment that we find ourselves in. There's very, there are very few mechanisms for interiority, for contemplation, right? It's not so much valued. And I think because of that, the classic midlife crisis, age whatever, 40s, 50s or something, is this recognition that I haven't cultivated that inner side, right? And so I have a yearning to go in that, go into that domain. And then the other thing you said that was so right on was this sense of impoverishment we have, where I realize at a certain point that the material acquisitions, they haven't fulfilled me in the way that I, I really wanted, right? And so I am seeking that career change that can 
satisfy a certain need for creativity or expressiveness, right? Or um, that that moves beyond just earning a living, which is funny too. It's not so much earning a living, but earning and earning. Yes. That's what a lot of people Absolutely. are Absolutely. You're yes. earning and earning. Yes. And that, um, it's tr- essentially you've just traded the symbol for the reality, right? The symbol of the thing, the dollar bill, is not the substance that that dollar bill can provide. And yeah, just, and it's kind of shocking. You know, yeah. I, I feel like it's kind of surprising. Like, and, and that goes to show you how powerful the cultural messages are. You're, you're breathing the air. You're in the water of it. You know, we're the fish mm-hmm. in the water of it. So then when you achieve the things and you check the boxes and it doesn't equate to a certain emotional experience, it's much more dynamic than that. It's a mixed feeling situation. Everything is a mixed feeling situation. It's hard not to be surprised. You're like, wait, I thought this was going to, I was going to feel a certain way when I got this. Right. Yes. And it's the the dissatisfaction of that revelation is, can be kind of jarring and kind of sad. It um, is. Yeah. A loss of innocence, I think. Th- there's a grief that comes with that for sure. And I've just felt that really strongly. Obviously, it's been more exacerbated in recent years with social media, but I've just felt for a long time that people are more invested in the the image of themselves or the way they would like to present things they've done, right? Rather than the actual experience. So y- you and I go to a restaurant in New Orleans and if we walk in the restaurant, grab the laminated menu, ooh, this looks really good. And then we walk outside the restaurant and take pictures of ourselves with the menu. And then we post it like, hey, look what a great time, great meal we had. Well, we didn't actually eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> we just walked out with this paper, which is the symbol of the, yeah. the menu items, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel that that's, that confusion is at the heart of a lot of our suffering and sorrow. And one of the aims of yoga is trying to get people more in touch with the domain of felt experiences and realities rather than abstractions, right? Well, I think Uh, that's definitely true in my yoga practice. Like I will catch myself looking in the mirror or looking at other people practicing, you know, right there. That's exactly what we're talking about where I'm like, oh, I'm not in that pose. I'm not flexible like that. I mean, you can feel it in real time. And then it's like, okay, go in, breathe. I think that's why it has helped me so much with anxiety is because my experience of anxiety and and the nature of anxiety is to be outside of yourself. You're disconnected from your body. And so in those moments, in the studio, in the heat, I, I like, or I prefer hot yoga most of the time, but I've, I've done other kinds of yoga. But I think when I really started to feel the benefits of it around mental health was in the heat because you're kind of, you feel a little bit challenged by the heat. And then if I looked up and got distracted or compared or got competitive, it was an immediate, you know, there goes the benefit of it. But when I stayed in, and found my own edge, whether I fell out, whether I didn't fall out, just stay on the mat, mm-hmm. have a deep breath, and then you get to the end of the class. It's like, if I can do this, I can be on an airplane. If I can right. do this, I can go have the hard conversation with my boss or with my teenager or with my husband. You know, it's all that reorganizing yourself around the breath and that mm-hmm. moment inside your body 
rather than giving the fear and what could happen in the future. And I, I just, the, as far as a practice goes, I feel like yoga has given me the experience of that way more than reading about the science of anxiety, which, you know, I've done, I've read so many books about anxiety. Right. But it's so well <laughs> And guess said. what? I still get anxious. <laughs> right. Totally. It doesn't quite do it. It just puts us right. back in abstraction and in theories. But the taste and feel of being at home within yourself is priceless and that yeah. is medicinal, I would say. So did you have a, a shift away from being the student to becoming the teacher? And do you feel like you have you had to find like your own philosophy around it and step into kind of leading a particular take on yoga? Yeah. Great question too. So now I'm in my 21st year of teaching. Yeah. And so it's been an ongoing process of trying to find my own voice and my own, what resonates for me philosophically. Yeah. Um, what actually, what I think works, what do I mean by works? <laughs> right. Yes. Um, okay. So in the yoga program, I did Rodney and Richard Rosen's uh, essentially two year, 900 hour training program. And halfway through it, a good friend, my best friend in the program actually said, I'm opening my own studio in San Francisco and I need to fill the teaching slots. So would you please teach Wednesday at 7 a.m.? Like, please, that's the last one I have. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not even finished my program. I'm not ready to teach yet. I have nothing to teach. And she just kept at it and wouldn't let me, you know, wouldn't take no for an answer. So she convinced me to teach. First class, my cousin, Megan, who was an art student at San Francisco, she shows up with her friend. We had a great time. Second class, nobody shows up. Yeah. Third class, one person shows You know, fourth. It was like that, like really small yeah. numbers. And I was just, I felt like the practice of teaching was helping me as a practitioner because of course, it's like yes. Joan, didn't Joan Didion say, how do I know what I think unless I write? Yes. Yes. If you don't write, you don't know what you're actually thinking in the same way. If you don't try to teach, you don't know in some ways what you think about the practice or what yes. you're doing. Right. Absolutely. So it was really helpful in that regard. And I just felt like it was, I wasn't treating it as a, certainly not a career path, but not even something that I wanted to do anymore. It was, it was kind of an adjunct teaching was an adjunct to learning mm-hmm. um, that was enforcing my learning process. And then, uh, I mean, gosh, a whole slew of events. I got, um, asked to teach some private clients by one of my yoga teacher friends who is leaving town. And I really love teaching one-on-one lessons. I still do to this day. I feel like Why? The most, what, what is it about that? It's much more effective it, for a person to learn without the pressure of comparing themselves to yeah, others. Yeah. Like in, the room, in my like example, <laughs> perfect example. What is so-and-so doing compared to me? Oh, I'm not yeah. quite that strong or that flexible, whatever. When you're one-on-one, so much of that fear drops away. Um, and it helps me creatively because I'm able to customize the practice to what a person really yeah. needs. I love the, the intimacy of it. So yeah. intimacy and f- efficacy are con- considerably higher in a one-on-one setting. And then I think that just helped me 
essentially transition page to be doing it for work. So I was yes. in my yoga school, right? I was waiting tables at Rose's Cafe in San Francisco. Um, I was teaching some private lessons, teaching that one yeah. class. And so I could wait tables all day and run my butt off for the same amount that I was getting to te- for teaching yes. one private lesson, right? And then a man who would always come to the restaurant who I'd wait tables on, his name was Tony Sanchez. He was the the protege of Bikram Chudre, so yes. progenitor of hot yoga, right? Or Bikram yoga. And this is so Tony Sanchez was Bikram's main student. He had a split with Bikram and and kind of created his own brand of hot yoga. And anyway, he's like, look, I'm closing my studio, moving to Baja, Mexico. I have these this two corporate groups and they pay $250 an hour for a lesson. Would you be interested in auditioning uh, to go teach them? And I said, of course, right? That sounded like a pretty good wage, like yes. twice as much as I was making in a waiting table shift, right? And so I went to salesforce.com. Uh, Mark Banyoff, their CEO, was a huge proponent of yoga and meditation. And mm-hmm. uh, they liked me in the audition. They hired me. And I was teaching them three days a week, the in-house teacher for salesforce.com for years. And yeah. that kind of led me to teaching other corporate groups. Um, kind of at the end of my San Francisco days, I had an architecture firm who I was teaching, a think tank called Urban Revision, a design firm, uh, a biotech company. And I would just drive around to these different companies and, and try to share, share. the what I thought would be the the most beneficial aspects of the practice with them. And so that's kind of, it's, you see how it's also another version of teaching people privately. It's, it's teaching a smaller group with a specified interest in it. Right. Well, I think that when I'm listening, I'm putting the dots together about how you arrive to your approach that now you've taught in New Orleans and I've been a part of, and I've watched your, you form your business and it's evolve and kind of, landing on your philosophy around yoga, because in those smaller groups, you're having such the immediate feedback of what's landing, what's helping and what's not helping. And so I'm curious, were there principles in your training or from classic yoga that you had to leave in order to find who you are now? Because, and I'll add this caveat, I find you to be so relatable in yoga. You know, the way you approach it is yoga everywhere, every you know, I, I go do a pose in the backyard before some of my client calls. And I think of you because you yeah. are the yoga teacher who and, and for Boyd, my husband, too, same, you know, like you've just had an impact on us, like straightening up, like put your shoulders mm-hmm. back when you're at your computer. Like that's yoga. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have gotten that broadly from yoga. I got that from you. So did you have to find that philosophy by leaving something classical? And was it OK? you know, to leave things. (laughs) Yeah. Great question. That's so good. I did leave behind, as I said, that kind of ladder achievement based mindset. I did start to leave behind a lot of just conventional poses or forms that I think were actually hurting people rather than helping them. And I really embraced props so okay. for those who don't yeah. know, props are supports, various forms of supports that essentially help the body find better balance. Yeah, and more ease. 
And without, so I'd been teaching prior to that with very few props, but when I would go into salesforce.com and see people whose lower backs were aching and who suffered from tension headaches and migraine headaches because they're, they were constricting their shoulders towards their ears sort of perpetually. I started to uh, try to help bring their attention to the what they were doing, essentially, what they're doing to themselves that might be contributing to their problems. So yes. sitting with your pelvis in a certain orientation compromises your lumbar spine and makes it feel dull and achy. Constricting your shoulders toward your ears does help or contribute to some of these these headaches and other ailments, right? And so if I could just say, hey, Paige, drop your shoulders away from your ears, you might be able to follow that instruction, but maybe you couldn't, or maybe you think you're dropping your shoulders away from your ears, but you're actually lifting them higher up toward your ears, right? So when I would get a strap and loop it around someone's shoulders and have them pull on it in such a way that the shoulder blades were dropping down and their neck was freeing up, then they would have an immediate experience of yes. the words I was trying to say, right? So yeah. it's back to that whole symbol versus reality. The, yeah. s- the words are the symbols. I'm trying my best to lead you in a good direction. But without the experience, the touch yeah. that a prop gives, then you have no way of, of um, again, tasting the yeah. real texture of the experience. And so embracing props to me was giving people, it was, it was producing better results in the fact that people were feeling better. They weren't debilitated yeah. by their migraine headaches. They felt like, Hey, this yoga thing is making my back feel better because Paige, I'm actually more aware of how I am when I'm sitting at my yes. desk and how I yes. am sitting on the BART or in Muni yeah. or whatever. Right. And that's what you're talking about, that it doesn't even, yoga doesn't have to be a pose. It's more of a conscious awareness of how you are yes. relating to yourself, how your body as a whole is relating to the larger body of the yeah. planet. Yeah. And in that way, again, the poses might've helped you find some of those relationships, but they're not the end. Right. The ends in themselves. Right. Right. They're just means to, to getting you to, um, again, feel something. So does yes. that kind of answer your question about, absolutely. I yeah, yeah. I basically left behind the more exercise oriented forms yeah. of yoga that were, you know, just getting you to move really quickly and sweat and, yeah. Um, and they're great for a lot of people. Yeah. That's great. Hot yoga, yeah. vinyasa yoga, flow yoga. Awesome. Like, that's yeah. cer- like when I was 19, that's what drew me in was a more yes. dynamic uh, athletic form of the practice at, yeah. at almost 49. So almost 30 years later. Right. Yeah. That doesn't appeal to me at all. It doesn't work for me yeah. or help me. And so, you know, when I'm teaching, uh, these corporate folks, or I'm teaching private clients, many of whom were older. Um, I started to change the the way I was teaching and and practicing, really. Yes. Uh, and started going, becoming more therapeutically oriented and less yes. um, exercise oriented. I guess yeah. you could say. And then when I became more um, invested, or like when I had more time in New Orleans to actually do privates with you and and visit the studio and you were really refining 
your messaging around yoga. Mm-hmm. The thing that so benefited me about your practice is this word balance. And that that's what makes me think of, you know, using the props and the shoulders down and mm-hmm. and moving it away from exercise and cardiovascular and just strengthening the body to bringing the body into balance and to be aware of the conversation happening within the body. Was balance always something compelling to you? You know, how did you land on that? And how do you experience that now, both in teaching balance in yoga, but I'm also curious about how you balance yoga with your life. You know, like when you get pissed off or you're a dad and you're a husband and you've got local family and tons of friends there, you know, what is balance for you as an idea? Yeah, great question. I mean, my high school senior yearbook quote was, balance is everything. No so way. I think I, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. So it has always been a value, a core value for me. Um, and we have to differentiate between, when you say balance, do we mean balancing on your head in the middle of the room? Do we mean balancing on one foot in tree pose? Or do we mean this larger version of balance, um, which is balancing your energy. If you are too amped up, a balancing practice would be something that calms you, quiets you down somewhat. Right. Yeah. And by the same token, if you're too lethargic and, and can't seem to get off the couch, well, for you to feel balanced is to do something that's uplifting, energizing, that raises you up slightly. Right. And so the balance of, of, of energetic properties is something I've been more attuned to in the last certainly decade or so. Um, and then when I think about balance in terms of, let's say the balance of strength and flexibility, right? People who typically show up to yoga equate yoga with just stretching, right? Yes. And they soon realize that when you, put yourself in a strength oriented pose, something like a warrior two or whatever, where you're engaging the muscles of your legs, you're mm-hmm. not really stretching that much at all. You're, you're, uh, you're contracting a lot of things. Yeah. Right? That's a big misunderstanding. People think yoga stretching. It's not. Um, and the other people could say you could in the, from the other end of the spectrum, people think that yoga is just strengthening or doing some Instagram show yeah. arm balance, right? Yes. Well, there's a, what they're missing is the aspect of the practice that's more about uh, softening or opening, right? Yeah. And so are you familiar with the term dystonia? D-Y-S-T-O-N-I-A. I mean, sort of, but not enough where I give us a reference point to it. Okay. So basically that's the medical description for um, imbalanced muscle tone. Okay. Dis, like D-Y-S, something that's um, that's disharmonious or, or not working properly. So in the dystonia model, or let's say the dystonia spectrum, you've got hypotonic, which would mean having less tone or insufficient tone, not enough tone. That would be someone whose joints are hypermobile, who doesn't have enough strength. They, um, they get joint dislocations or are generally lower on energy because the system is, is disintegrated. It's not held together as well as could be right. That's would be hypotonic. Well, then you have hypertonic, which is too much tone. 
That's the the stiff shoulders, the overbound chest, the rigid leg muscles, the gripped buttocks, pelvic floor. Hypertonic is too much tone in the system, right? Okay. Okay. So in the on the dystonia spectrum, hypotonic, hypertonic. Well, guess what, Paige? There's no word for the optimum. I've asked countless physician friends and occupational therapist friends and physical therapist friends, hey, what what's the the word for the ideal? And no one can come up with the answer. And the reason is our whole language, well, our 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 system is oriented toward identifying problems, right? Yes. My dad went to medical school and told has told me countless times, I learned for four years how to identify and categorize diseases, but they never told me about what it was like to be healthy. Yes. <laughs> to live well, right? Yes. So allopathic medicine, as fantastic as it is, it has some limitations because its orientation is toward problems, yeah. right? So... I kind of had to come up with my own word. It, what's if there's no, it, what's the opposite of dystonia? Um, okay, so dystonic would be like the other adjective, right? Like imbalanced muscle tone. Yeah. So then I came up with equitonic, like <laughs> equal tone, balanced yes. tone, right? But then that sounded a little bit too much like a gin and tonic or another alcoholic yeah. beverage, right? Yeah. So then I, I changed it from dystonia or dystonic to eutonic, E-U, okay. right? like uh, euphoric or something that's yeah. positive. So balanced tone in the body is, is eutonic. It's the right, the capacity to engage and the capacity to release. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to describe because again, we don't have that many models of it in our culture. Yes. We don't even have the words for it. People don't even know that's possible. Yeah. But through these practices, you just start to discover that sweet spot, the in-between place. Yeah. Right. And, Gosh, I um, love that. I love that the first syllable is you because you are the experience. Yeah. You know, like you identify it through your felt sense experience, which is what you were talking to, to us about earlier. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's so you. it's not uh, outwardly. It's not, it's not what the right. teacher can do or what your neighbor can do. You <laughs> need yeah. to find the right amount of yeah. the right blend of tone Yeah. in any situation. So in so any situation. And what yeah. I've loved about working with you, Jeffrey, is that it's a conversation, mm-hmm. That that's the other part of it. It's the balance, but you're in conversation with balance. It's not a fixed point. And here I am. And, you know, I think about people listening who play a lot of golf. You know, I know a lot of people who play golf and you never know how you're going to play. You know, it's like it, you could feel so skilled one day and then the next week you go on the golf course and it's you feel like you're awful and all that was wasted time. And, you know, so it's always a conversation with the elements and yeah, how relaxed you are. And and I think that's balance at large in our lives. I think that's how we experience balance. And you really were the one to introduce that concept to me of being in conversation with your body. And I didn't even know I had a body until I was pregnant with those twins. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got pregnant with twins and I was like, what is happening? Wow. Because b- prior to that, it was just my body has a symptom. I need to take Advil so I can keep going. You know, whether that symptom was soreness or maybe I was hungover or, you know, nauseous, whatever. It's like, just give, get rid of the symptom. There was no, um, I had no concept of living in my body. 
Yeah. And I think that's something I hear my clients talking about. I, I see it, you know, across social media now. I think it's an idea that's, that's gotten a lot more airtime. It's getting its day in the sun. And I think it's because we've become so separate from our bodies with our devices that to, I, to drop yes. in, people don't know the, the, what that is. And do you see that in your practice? Have you seen the difference working with students who come in like me, who yeah. don't even know they have a body, and then you're taking them through either privates or intensives or classes, and you see them become more embodied and tell us what that looks like and how you experience that as a teacher. Yes, so well said. And I'll take it a step further because it's not even that I have a body, it's I am a body. Yeah. So it shows That's up a great distinction. Yeah. little moments where it's like, how come I can say um, my there's a problem with my feet? Um, or let's say it like this, Paige. Because you'll hear this in every yoga class you, yeah. you take. The teacher will say, stretch your arm forward in front of you. Stretch your arm forward in front of you. Right. Take your leg back behind you. Who's you and who's the leg? Yes. <laughs> who's you and who's the arm? Your arm forward in front of you. Yeah. Oh, wait, uh, my arm is part yeah. of me, right? Yeah. So we're living in this weird, we have this chauffeur principle where we conceive of ourselves as a little guy or gal or they or whoever in yeah. living in the head who's like behind this fictitious control panel that's hitting buttons and hearing sounds. We That's our sense of ourselves. Yeah. That we're this person that's riding around in a body and it only occurs to us to tend to that body, to take it into the shop for Advil or whatever, when something right. goes wrong with it, right? Yeah. And what yoga starts to make you realize is that there is no division whatsoever between mind, body, emotions, yeah. spirit. It's one whole thing. There is yeah. psychophysical spiritual unity. Yeah. That's it. Psychophysical, all of yourself. And so to reclaim and remember that you're all of yourself is incredibly healing. And what you're talking about too, with, with respect to people being even more drawn out of themselves with technology is look at the classic example of someone who goes to a sporting event or a Taylor Swift concert or whatever. Yeah. And they're watching the event through their phone. Yeah. You're at the event, dude. You paid for the yeah. ticket to be there in, yes, to be there live, right? But you're watching it through a secondhand experience. And I, I used to get kind of angry about that. I wanted to just grab their phone and say, yo, dude, you're here. Look, listen. Yeah. And then what I realized is that people have to do that because they don't know that they're there. Yeah. Wow. They're that's powerful. not present so they need the recorded experience to remind themselves it's not even yeah. about texting your friend hey look how awesome the bruce springsteen concert was like that's kind of the braggadocious exteriorizing yeah. um attitude right it's that they need to look at it again to see and know that they actually were there right yes and that just feels again impoverished to me it's like we're a culture of people who are trying to eat pureed soup with a fork. 
Right. And we're getting right. a little bit of it, but the rest is dribbling down our chins and spilling. Or You the don't get the full taste. Yeah, the full Not nourishment. The full taste, dude. Right? I think and about so, that so much with um, parenting because mm-hmm. I taught preschool for several years and then, then I had my own kids in elementary school. And the the jockeying that you have to do to see your own child at the performance because there's so many cell phones in the air. Right. And my experience of it is feeling the collective fear that we have that if I witness this moment that is so beautiful, even referencing the moment, like even remembering while I'm speaking right now, the image of children on a stage singing, like these things that they've worked so hard to do and they're so innocent and it's so awesome and funny and beautiful. It's just beautiful to see children that way. Yeah. And if you didn't film it, it's so fleeting. It's so in your face how fleeting it is. And then it's like, well, what if I forget it? You will forget it. That 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 is all of life. You know, right. like it is that fleeting. That's so right. I think to live in that vulnerability and that it's like, well, I've got it filmed and no one is ever going to look at the three hour video of the nativity performance when your kid was two. No, no one that first of all, you're going to lose your phone or you're not going to upload right. it or who has that hard drive. I don't know. You know, it's like. It's that feeling of just like you're saying, the only thing we really have is having the experience being in the body. I am a body. Mm-hmm. This is my whole life. It's just this one moment. And that's invigorating and it's terrifying. Both at the same yeah. time. Well said. It's invigorating and terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, to your point too, I love it. The nativity, three hour nativity or nativity um, video. Yeah. Like I, I've told you before, and listeners might find this slightly incongruous because I love yoga, but I also love the New Orleans Saints. That yes. Is my team. I'm a diehard. It's both Ann and Jeffrey. I can't, right. You cannot live in New Orleans and not have your right. black and gold on on a Sunday, please. Right. That's just that. That's part of our balance, right? Yes. And so um, top five best days of my life, you know, number one, marriage, or my wedding day with my wife. Two, yeah. three, four are going to be the birth of my children. Number five is watching the Saints win the Super Bowl in yes. Miami. I was there, right? I was live. And Taylor and I ran down to, you know, the confetti is coming down and the Saints players are kind of running around the field and they're setting up the big stage for the Lombardi presentation. Well, Taylor and I run down right to where the field is and Reggie Bush, our star player, like yes. runs by us and Taylor goes, Reggie. And she like, she's like, who that? Reggie, she's waving at him. And he looks right at us. He stops running. He looks at us, points at us, and then just gives us like a big fist pump. And then he keeps going. Well, my sister-in-law videoed that whole thing, right? Yeah. I've never watched the video once. <laughs> I don't yeah. need to. I don't care. Yeah. Because I was there, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, no one can we ever take away from me. I locked eyes with him. He saw me. We had an exchange. Oh my God. Yeah. It was incredible. I don't, where is that hard drive? That was on a freaking, this is like before good iPhones, right? That was yeah. on those little, I don't even know, but I don't know where it is yeah. and I don't care to see it. I don't need to see it. And I yeah. think that's one of the lessons that any embodiment practice or, or internal arts form practice will give you. Yeah. And I'm not bound to yoga either. That's why I rebranded as Yoga Unbound because, um, as I said, I wanted to differentiate myself from the more conventional trends of exercise uh, oriented yoga or even to the tradition itself. 
Like, you know, you asked, are there certain things that have fallen away? Well, I spent 10 years teaching the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras and um, having philosophy discussions with my teacher trainees. And so much of of that has just fallen away for me where it's it's no longer all that. Yes. And isn't that great that you can evolve? I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing about owning your own business, you know, and just Mm -hmm. that that level of it. But also, I think that idea that we are here to teach what we came to learn, you know, it's similar to what you said earlier. Mm. You know, you you are teaching and you're here to teach, but you're never, you've never stopped learning about it. And so what resonates does fall away and, you know, other things come in and then you bring your depth of understanding to us, you know, and, and then there's an exchange there that's that's alchemical, I think. Yeah. You know, Beautiful. it's always a relationship. And that's another yes. thing you mentioned earlier. It's uh, you're always in relationship. And when I think about embodiment and yoga, one of the things that has helped me the most is breath work, just breathing. And before I did any breath work, or, you know, again, that's another thing that's out there like breath work, you do box breathing, you do this kind of breathing, you know, all these different types of breathing. But for me, the portal was being on the mat falling out of a pose, taking a deep breath, breathing through a pose that I'm holding, taking child's pose, which everybody should know. Everybody should, when you guys finish this episode, <laughs> whether yeah. you're driving, wherever, take child's pose. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's just breathing through mm-hmm. some experience of your body being a certain way and you are mindfully, at, you know, bringing your attention to your body. And that's that's the breath. And I think yoga is just breath, maybe. Yeah, I think so too. Did you have anything else on your mind? Oh, just, I love what you said about how I'm not a finished, completed, um, polished teacher. I'm still learning and evolving and sharing the journey with everyone. And so the, the, real substance of my teaching comes from all the mistakes I've made and what I've learned from them. Yeah. Um, little experiments I've done within the laboratory of my own body, how they've, those experiments have gone and how, um, you know, hopefully when something's favorable, then I try to share that Yes. with, with another. And it just reminded me of, a you know, your earlier comment about how I managed to integrate yoga in my life. Well, um, anyone who's close to me would know that sometimes I don't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't integrate it that well at all. That's like me and inten- I, I teach um, intention a lot. A lot of my job is around being yeah. intentional with your life, live what matters. It's that's the whole thing. And the other day, I felt so busy and scattered, and my husband Boyd was like, "Well, have you set an in- an intention?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> and he's right. like, "Why don't you stop? <laughs> like, what what's your priority? You know, because we've done a lot of that work together too." So he fully called me out. Yes, yeah, I think that's it, so real. Yeah, so real and so helpful to be in relationship with a partner or with a friend who can mirror that back to you. Right. So I've had many examples, but a few years ago I was playing tennis with my brother and I'm just yelling at myself. I mean, out loud, I'm like, yeah, oh, damn it, Jeffrey. I'm yeah, I'm cursing myself out <laughs> about how poor my backhand is. And we're on the changeover, you know, between games. And he's like, dude, you should really try taking one of your classes sometime because you could learn a lot from the things that you're teaching. 
Yeah. That kind of thing. Like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not walking the walk. I'm, I would never talk to anybody, any of my students like that, never talk to my children right. like that. Right. I would never be that mean. And yet here I am doing yeah. it myself. Same thing with a couple of winters ago when you and Boyd and the children came in for Christmas, right? And he and yeah. I took them all to go play disc golf. Oh, yeah. A couple other dads joined us. So we had like 10 kids and we're rolling around City Park throwing Frisbees at a basket. I mean, it's the most like ludicrous, but just fun thing to do, right? And because a lot of the kids hadn't played before, I'm just giving them some pointers on how you actually throw the thing, right? And we're a few holes in and my oldest son, Xander, he he just, he walks up next to me and he goes... (laughs) He's like, Dad, you're funny, man. Have you noticed that every time that any of us throw the Frisbee, you're immediately complimentary. You point out the positive, one positive thing about what they did. Like, oh, good shoulder rotation. That's it, Zach. Good, good, whatever, velocity, good release. Like, I'll say something good. And he said, (laughs) the second you throw a Frisbee that's anything less than perfect, you say, God damn it, Jeffrey. Yeah. And it's that type of epiphany that I'm not always treating myself the way I aspire to treat others. And that's a kind of a gut punch, right? Because I would like to bring those things into better alignment to if kindness is really my number one value, kindness and well-being, well, then why is it that I can be so kind to animals or elderly people or children or students, but I'm so harsh with myself, you know? Gosh, a lot of people listening will relate to that. I relate to that. You know, it's just, again, it's not that you would never have those moments. I think it's your rate of recovery when those moments happen that, that you're aware enough to realign. And again, that's falling out of the pose and taking the breath and returning home. Yeah. You know, back here, I'm compassionate. I'm heart centered. I'm forgiving, but it is, I, I find that to be very challenging to apply that to self. It's, Mm -hmm. I, I, it's way easier. I am way more generous with others, especially our children, you know, especially young people, because you're, you're rooting for them and you know on some level that you are a role model. Whether you're conscious of that or not, you just know because you're the adult in the room. So I can kind of rise up in that moment. But when it's just me and me, it becomes very adolescent, immature. (laughs) You know, I can have a little tantrum with myself very easily. But I tell you what, that's to me that it's the breath. You know, when when you can turn back and say, wow, I've got to be back with you, you know, me in the middle, mm-hmm. rebalance, recenter, you know, find where I am and just meet myself there, really. Totally. I love it. So the title of the podcast is I'll meet you there. I'll meet yes. myself there too. Yes, meet myself there. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about um spirituality because mm-hmm. earlier when you talked about the totality of yoga for you, um that it's psychology, that it's spirituality, that it's your life, that it's a physical expression. I'm really curious about this. Do you think yoga has to be spiritual? And do you find that yoga is your spirituality? Because, And I ask that because some people I think are like, oh, I'm not spiritual, I'm not doing yoga. So I'm curious about the person thinking that. 
And then I think of some other people who say, oh, I'm not spiritual at all. And yet they have these practices in their life that I would consider a version of spirituality. Yeah. So I, I want to know from your experience, your take on that, the relationship between those two, as you feel it and as you've experienced it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I always go back to the Krishnamurti quote where he said, to be spiritual is to be sensitive to life. Oh, I love that. It's just so broad, right? Beautiful. And it requires no uh, formalities or even rituals. It's about a certain, a particular way of paying attention to the miracle of being alive. And I think that's what you're doing with 31 days of gratitude. You're reminding us of ways, their little practices of just looking and sensing, um, the bounty. Yeah. That's, that's around you, right? So to be sensitive to life. And that doesn't mean to just be sensitive to all the positive things, right? There are horrific things happening right now yeah. in the world. We have multiple wars going on. And so to be sensitive to the plight of people who are really suffering as well yeah. is, is a part of spirituality about being, to me, it's about being connected to a larger, whatever you want to call it, um, the largeness and fullness of life. It's it, to me, spirituality is more of a sensation mm -hmm. than any sort of uh, idea or ideation. It's not a concept. Um, it transcends, as I said, rituals. I think it's more of a, a sense of feeling connected to the largeness and the fullness of the fabric of life. And so how does one get that sensation? I mean, it can happen yeah. in any, all sorts of ways, right? Some people's spirituality is the collective effervescence. That's a, a, a term yeah. by the French sociologist Emile Durkheim, right? The collective effervescence that they feel in the Superdome when yes. the Saints won their first playoff game in, um, you know, 2001. Like, I saw grown men weeping, crying, hugging. Um, it was yeah. – that was – that was spiritual for me, people feeling connected, yeah. even if it's just to the largeness of the city and the, um, the, the, what the team meant to their civic pride. Like, I think that's a spiritual experience. Yeah. I think for others going out in nature, uh, I mean, have you stood under Yosemite Falls? Yeah. I've done so multiple times. It's jaw dropping. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like you, you're you're dwarfed in some ways by that, yeah. that larger presence, you know? And so it's like the David White quote in his poem, Everything is Waiting for You, yes. where he says, surely even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus drowning out your solo voice. Yeah. Surely even you at times, surely everyone at times has felt this grand array, a swelling presence where their individual self was eclipsed by this larger self. Yeah. The chorus drowning out your small stories, your solo voice, right? So I find that if I don't have routine nature uh, 
immersions that I feel, I start to feel spiritually impoverished. Yes. I, I lose that connection. Yeah. Um, so that's important to me. I get it, man. I mean, some people can find that through music. Yeah. Some people can find that through other forms of performance or through their yeah. athletic endeavors. I've talked to a lot of endurance athletes who talk about um, uh, spiritual epiphanies that they have on a long run or something. The yeah. sense of deep waves of compassion that come through and acceptance and real belonging that they somehow experience through their given pursuit. So your initial question, does yoga have to be spiritual? No. Yeah. Not at all. It can be, in my opinion, it can be totally utilitarian if that's where, yeah. where you want to meet it. If you're just that golfer who has back problems, okay, use the practice in such a way that it's just enhancing the quality of your game and your life. That's fine. Yeah. But yoga's got a way of sneakily <laughs> starting to make you more sensitive to life. Yes. And that same yes. golfer who initially just learned a couple of cool twists and feels, oh my God, my drives are getting longer. My back feels better. I'm recovering more quickly from my three hour Saturday yeah. golf outing. They'll, the, the yoga is kind of insidious in that it's planting seeds of connection and awareness. And that same person might start to inexplicably yeah. break down in tears at their third grade daughter's yeah. performance because they've been opened up in some way. Yeah. They've been made more sensitive. Um, so go ahead, man, approach it. If you're, have yeah. never done yoga and you're skeptical, okay, approach it yeah. at where you are. And I would wager that uh, if you stick with it long enough, these, some of these spiritual underpinnings will also start to, yeah. Um, work their way in and they can't help but do that because as I said, yoga is working on the premise of wholeness of the unified yes. self, yes. psychophysical, spiritual yeah. unity. What do you feel like the biggest gift of um, your yoga practice, your personal practice, regardless of teaching and running a business around it? What is the gift of that in your life? Well, for one, just the gift of well-being, the fact yeah. that I get to walk around feeling great. Yeah. Okay. So in the beginning, you could tell, like my, our friends in San Francisco would be like, you know, Jeffrey, why are you, why are you so obsessed with this yoga thing? And I would say like, well, my back doesn't hurt anymore. Yeah. That's the, like, that's all, that's almost from the dystonia uh, yes. model, right? Like yes. it's, it, it did hurt. Now it doesn't hurt, but it, Okay, if we take Deepak Chopra's uh, health is more than the absence of disease. Yes. It's not just that it doesn't hurt. My back feels buoyant, yeah. light, supple. I can walk around the streets of Barcelona last summer with my yeah. eight-year-old girl, my daughter, who's 60 pounds. She gets tired of walking around the Sagrada Familia. She's tired. I'm going to put her on my shoulders. I can carry her for a mile and have no back problems or pain whatsoever. In fact, my back feels strong and supportive and, yeah. and great, right? So the gift of feeling buoyant, easeful yes. in just movements and everyday functioning, I think you can't really put a dollar value on that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in in dollar terms, I've got, let's say, $387 in my 
check in my in my savings account. Really, yeah. I only have three hundred eighty-seven dollars savings account. But in my yoga, in my health account, in yeah. my well-being account, I have three hundred eighty-seven million dollars. Yeah. Is what I feel like. So I can withdraw from that account all the time. Yeah. I mean, knock on wood, I, I get sick like maybe every five or ten years. Yeah. Um, so it's, it has given me, I believe, a radiant immunity. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful invitation because I think feeling good is actually not a measure of success enough in our culture. Right. You know, it gets to feel good. You get to feel good in your body. You get to feel good in your life. The yeah, relationship yeah. gets to feel good. You get to check in and decide if that thing that's being recommended to you or if that thing that your friend is doing or the cold plunge that anybody and everybody on Instagram wants to take a picture of, it might not work for you. Right. And and your whatever your wellness practices are and just the way you are in your life, you know, I think yeah. it goes back to can we get better and more attuned to that conversation within ourselves and ask that question does this feel right for me? Is this true for me? And I've had a long journey with that because for so for so long, I think, especially as women, you're taught to make sure it's right for everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, does everybody else feel great about this? In fact, when you and I did a private years ago, I remember I was leaning forward on my toes, which you were able to identify within two seconds, you know, and and to be able to receive and be more balanced instead of like r- ready to go, mm-hmm. you know, and up and at them and who needs me and, but to be back and it's still hard for me in yoga to, to expose my heart. I've told you that before. Like I mm-hmm. can't really bend over a chair. Mm-hmm. That's something I haven't learned how to do. Just be that out and exposed. I'd rather be forward and going towards people. And it's just little self-awareness, you know, just being in relationship with that. It's not right or wrong. I don't ever have to bend over a chair potentially in my whole life. Do it back then. But the openness and I do want that experience. It does feel good to receive when I can Mm -hmm. breathe through that and be aware of my capacity. And I just think that's so beautiful that that's been a gift of yoga to you. It's a gift that you offer in your teachings. And I think just making feeling good something that's relatable. It's not mystical. It's not competitive. It's not out of reach. It's a conversation. Yes. So well said. And it's, it's, it's a human birthright. I feel like. Yeah. So yoga shouldn't be the province of an elite group of people or a socioeconomic level. I think it's just for all humans. Yeah. Uh, and yoga our, anytime, anywhere, yeah, for, for everyone, any body, <laughs> any type of body, which is yes. why props are so great because they can they can accommodate uh, the shapes to your body's propensities. Yes. I also yes. think it goes back to the fact that we are just deficient on the r- words of positive well being. Right? Yes. So I had to create my own eutonic. Yes. Tony, right? And in the same way, I think you and I as, as writers and people who like to play with words, we're trying to get words that are more uh, generous and, and maybe more accurate descriptors yes. of, of the positive states of feeling well, right? Yeah. I'll never forget the Krista Tippett interview with Vivek Murthy. 
Yes, do you, so do you good. Remember that one? Yes, I love Krista. I know we both share a love for her. We love Krista Tippett. And for those who don't know, Vivek Murthy is the Surgeon General of the United States. Yeah. And I rewound this one 15 second clip maybe 10 times in a row because I couldn't believe my ears. The Surgeon General of the United States said, We need to reorient our entire healthcare system away from fear and toward love. Oh. Can you believe that? I rewound it again. Did you really just say that out loud? I'll say it again. We need to reorient our entire healthier system away from fear and toward love. And so this love part, the positive um, principle is what I'm wanting to experience more and to share more and to talk about more and to let people know that it's okay to... Um, to receive more yes. and they keep, uh, you know what, you, um, one little word that has really changed my perspective on breathing is the word take, um, take a tell breath. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Because take a breath. when I hear someone say, take a breath, or if I tell myself to take a breath or the yoga teacher says that the word take implies a sort of shortage and it makes me feel anxious about needing to to reach out and grab it. Yeah. Take a breath implies that I don't have it there it's in short supply and I better hoard something, right? Yeah. As though it's day 1 of the pandemic and I'm in Costco and I better take as many of the yeah. paper towel rolls and toilet <laughs> yeah, paper. Yeah, I remember I those days. Take, yeah. Right? So take a breath. How does it make you feel right now if I say Paige, receive a breath? Way better. Way better. Page. How about page? Accept a breath. Great. Great. Because t- I, for me, when you said take a breath, it reminds me of when I'm upset and somebody says, calm down. Right. I can't stand that. Like, I uh, want to be upset right now. Yeah. No, no one in the history of the world has calmed down because some loved one turns to them and says, calm down. <laughs> it's absurd. It makes you want to get more upset. <laughs> it does. It makes you more annoyed. I've observed this all the time. How about the movie Airplane from 1980, right? Where the poor woman's having a panic attack on the airplane and people are lined up down the aisle with billy clubs, punching bat or, you know, boxing gloves. And every one of them is grabbing her and shaking her and say, calm down, get a hold of yourself, right? (laughs) And just making her freak out more. Well, take a breath, although well-intentioned instruction, it on an energetic, subtle level makes me feel anxious, actually. Yeah. And when I flip it the other way, receive a breath, accept a breath, there's plenty of breath all around you. I naturally relax into the present moment. I I receive more than I would have had I been greedily taking and grasping, you know? I love that so much. Thank you for offering that that reframe. I think that's so beautiful and really useful. Mm. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Who, who doesn't need a breath? We all need to receive a breath. We all could accept a breath. And it's a, it's all around you. Like you said, we're the fish swimming in the water. There's breath going in and out of us all the time. It's omnipresent. Just, it's actually more about relaxing and opening yourself up and becoming more absorbent. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know how that relates back 
to the oh we're talking about Vivek Murthy and just how we yeah. need more we need to yeah. change our our language in order yeah. to be more positively oriented toward love and toward yeah. wellness and and I wanted to touch back on one thing spirituality wise that you brought yeah. up a while ago um we talked about this connection the larger fabric of life or the yeah. the 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 grand array, the swelling presence, the chorus yeah. drowning out your individual voice. Well, one time my teacher, Rodney, he went through like a year-long phase where he kept talking about how the seat of the soul is right in the center of your chest uh-huh. and how he had learned that from his teacher, BKS Iyengar, and how we should be doing these supported back bends and yeah. heart opening poses in order to get contact with the seat of our soul. Right. And it just never really resonated with me. I couldn't, I, it's, it, it kind of harkened back to that same chauffeur principle of like yeah. this, why does the soul need his, uh, his or her own seat, their seat, whatever, what the soul should seem, seems like more boundless than that to yeah. be restricted to some body part. Right. And so I don't know. I've just kicked around what are other ways of conceiving of the soul. And I was taking the garbage out at my house one Sunday night. This is a couple of years ago. And I just froze in my tracks and I dropped the garbage bag and I almost like keeled over because this thought came into my mind, which is what if the soul doesn't exist in the body, but the body exists in the soul? Oh, I love that. In the larger soul, right? Yeah. And these moments that we have of being more connected as we are in nature or to um, people at the concert or... In the Superdome. Yeah, in the Superdome. What if it's just the recognition that you, your individual self, is kind of de-identified with that narrow point narrow. of view and it's re-identified itself with the larger whole yeah. that soul yes right i mean another it's a story distinction it's i think the distinction is am i leading with ego or am i leading with soul and my body you know not necessarily that it follows but that it's the biggest energy wins right so it's like the soul energy when you're in those collective situations when you your vibration is high we remember that it is really about that. Yes. It's really about that expression way more than it's about some sort of egoic proving of your mm-hmm. worth. Mm-hmm. 100%. And the story that just popped in my mind about yeah. that was going to the Super Bowl. God, your listeners are going to think I'm like <laughs> way Let them think it. I was just, I was given the ticket. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't buy a Super Bowl ticket <laughs> we're, myself. We're, That's way right. out of my price range. But I was given a free ticket to the 2012 yeah. uh, Super Bowl between the 49ers and the Ravens. It happened to be in the Superdome, right? And I show up after having taught several private lessons and a four-hour teacher training course, right? Um, I'm meeting my two, my brothers-in-law. Is that how you say it? Brother-in-laws or brothers-in-law? Yeah. You get the idea. They're the ones who gave me the tickets, right? Well, they came from eight hours of drinking, um, like old fashions. They were just wasted when when they show up at the game. I come in having eaten like a banana and green juice and I'm just been like – 
doing all these fabulous yeah. breathing exercises and whatever, you know, so we're just, we're coming from a different place. I met them at the seats, right? Like about yeah. 20 minutes before the game starts. Well, this 49ers fan behind us was, I guess, kicking my brother-in-law's chair. My brother-in-law gets mad at him. They exchange words. Within two minutes, they were about to get in a fist fight. I mean, they're yeah. like, they're, it was really violent the way they were just addressing each other. Right. And I'm thinking, great, man. Like now I'm in a dilemma. I have to kind of help protect my brother-in-law, but at the same time, I don't want yeah. anybody to fight. Like, how can I be the peace here? How can yeah. I w- walk that talk? Right. And guess what page the Sandy hook elementary choir of fifth grade singers comes on. Wow. And they start singing America, the beautiful, yeah. and you could hear a pin drop in the yeah, Superdome. Now, within two minutes of them, us hearing them sing, my everything, the tensions between my brother-in-law and this fan behind him completely evaporated. Yeah. And it, and all of a sudden they saw the, their humanity in each yeah. other that th- it cut through so hard when you s- hear a choir of kids who are yes. coming from the school, people who don't remember the Sandy Hook tragedy, the massacre there. Right. Um, I'll just remind you that those children who were murdered or, or, or human beings. Right. And yes. we all see ourselves in them in yes. some way. Yes. And them and ourselves. And so when you say namaste at the end of a yoga class, which really literally means I bow to thee. And some people yeah. interpret that as, you know, the light in me recognizes the light in you. Well, it's that same phenomenon that my brother-in-law and this fan experienced. They didn't say namaste to each other. Yeah. But they felt what it meant. And yes. they all of a sudden, then they, they realized this is ridiculous to be fighting. They bought each other a beer, shook hands, and now we're just in a more peaceful state for the rest of the game, right? Beautiful. And I think that's what we need more of is those, those bridges, right, between us as yes. factional people and and more bridges between the parts of ourselves that are kind of warring yeah um and and that's yoga i think that's yoga that's the unity that's that's all of it unified and when you have that collective unity then you can meet the other person the person with whom you were in conflict it's like if you're if you're in a situation where you're invited into that space you receive that space I think that's yoga. I do too. I think that's what it's about. Yeah. I hope this conversation stayed with y'all. I know it has stayed with me. Just noticing sensations in the body a few times a day is such a meaningful practice. And Jeffrey reminded me of the importance of doing that consistently. I know that when I am consistently checking in and noticing, I feel a lot less reactive and a lot more responsive. And that feels really good. That feels like well-being. And Jeffrey has taught me that well-being is is not outside of where I am. It exists within me when I'm sensitive to my experience and when I'm tuned into my experience. That's where I have access to well-being. I've definitely started saying I am a body, which is really helpful. It immediately connects me to that physical awareness, which I need. Otherwise, I can just live in my thoughts and convince myself that 
all of this thinking is reality when it's not, it's just thinking. And I've also been saying, I accept a breath. I receive a breath. And I find that to be so gentle and inviting. You know, there's so many ways that life feels like it can be out to get us, like little things like a traffic jam or something spills on your shirt before a work presentation or a kid is sassy to you or someone doesn't call you back. And also big things like someone you love dies or you don't get the job or the relationship is falling apart. And it can be really, really difficult to trust life. But I do think trusting life is the end game. That's what it feels like to me that that that's where the peace is. And when I accept a breath, it feels like life is for me. Life shows up for us in this really generous, generative way. And if we can receive that breath, well, maybe we can trust that life is giving, that we can live with all and through all of the ways that our lives unfold. I don't know how to do that all day long, but I do know that I can do it one moment and then maybe another moment. And being in the one moment at a time is what feeling good is all about. So thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you for um, all the lessons and all the teachings that you put out into the world. I love spending time with you. I always do. And I'm so grateful for your presence. And I'm, I'm so grateful you're willing to share you and what you're all about with all of us. See you next time. Thanks to each of you for being here and for listening. I'm so grateful we get to share life in this way. As always, full show notes are available at pagenolan.com forward slash podcast. There you will find a full summary of the episode, timestamps and key takeaways and any resources mentioned in our conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love if you would leave me a rating and a review. You can do that by visiting pagenolan.com forward slash love. Your reviews really do help people to discover the show. And if you know someone specifically who would enjoy this episode, I'm so grateful to have you all share. I'll meet you there with your friends. Lastly, if you have any questions or comments, or if you would like to share any feedback with me, please email to there at pagenolan.com. I would love to hear from you. Thank you to the team that makes this show possible. Podcast production and marketing by North Node Podcast Network. Music by Boyd McDonald. Cover photography by Innes Casey. Okay, y'all, that's it for now. I'll meet you there again soon.